Support for WMFE comes from JustCallMo.com and attorney Mo DeWitt. As a Central Florida native, Mo DeWitt is committed to offering legal guidance in personal injury cases such as car accidents and slip and falls. Offices in Orlando. More at JustCallMo.com. Welcome to Engage, leading conversations that matter. Engage explores Central Florida's issues and culture with new voices, new perspectives, and thought-provoking interviews. Engage is made possible with the support of members like you and inaugural sponsor, JustCallMo.com. Engage is hosted by Sharon Stone. You are listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Coming up, Central Florida is in the running for the state's Black History Museum, And Florida eliminated sociology as a core course at its state universities. A local sociology professor talks with us about the impact on his job security and his concerns for students. First, though, while in Orlando, Governor Ron DeSantis called on Florida lawmakers to reform the state's book ban policies. He made these comments days after a Miami school required students to get a signed permission slip to read books for Black History Month. Our education reporter, Danielle Pryor, was there for that announcement last Thursday. She's live now in our studio to explain the possible impact on classrooms and students. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. Let's back it up a bit. Can you remind our audience of just how do we get to this point where thousands of books have been banned in Florida? Right. So it really has to do with HB 1069. And that is a law that passed in 2023 last year, making it really easy to challenge books if they're age inappropriate or sexually graphic. And it requires every school board to have a really easy to follow procedure. So what that means is that school board meetings are just being inundated with folks who want to challenge and remove books. And that's kind of how we've gotten to this point now a year later in 2024, where books like All Boys aren't blue and even the diary of Anne Frank have been removed from some you know classroom and school libraries. Just to be clear, where does this ban apply? Are we talking in our public schools and their libraries? That's right. So it could be a classroom library, a personal teacher library in the classroom, uh, a school library, really any book that is on a school campus is fair game for these challenges. And I want to make sure people understand this. For those who may not be clear, Is this at all connected to the Florida Department of Education changing the standards for teaching black history in AP high school courses? So those are actually related to different laws that passed the year before in 2022. That's more Stop Woke Act and Parental Rights in Education, uh, whereas the book bans are more of a law that was passed in 2023. But they're all a part of the same push, Sharon, to have parents have more kind of control and rights over what their kids are learning and how they're learning it in schools. All right. Makes total sense. Thank you. So Florida's book bans, they've become such a topic of national discussion that Moms for Liberty co-founder Tiffany Justice and former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio talked about them just last week at the Orlando Public Library. I know you were at that discussion. Mm-hmm. You've covered a number of events. There was a demonstration in Brevard County. About 100 students protested the district's book ban policies. And you've heard from so many people, Danielle. I want to talk about their reaction. So let's just start with students. What are they telling you? Yeah, so students are kind of all across the board. Some of them are really against the bans. I spoke with um, Anjani Sharma, who's a senior at West Shore High. Uh, that was at the Brevard Book Ban protest just a few weeks ago in front of the school board. 
Uh, some people like might like books, some people might like some core subject, but for me, the reason why I feel passionate about the subject is because I think that when you give students um, to an extent, some sort of academic freedom and teachers, you can really learn so much and you can take that and have such a diverse impact. I want to be a, I want to go into law and then eventually politics and a lot of these issues, they really inspire me and they motivate me to go into the, sort of these, you know, fields because I learn about something that's happening on the other side of the world or I learn about something that I could never experience. So when I learn about it from a book or whether I learn about it from a course concept, it inspires me you know I go into I love to listen to it I love to really understand these perspectives and that's why I want to go into a field where I can effectively help people so so I also spoke with Eastern Florida State College junior Rosalina Rodriguez who's also against book bans yeah well my most concern is that um, you know the future really Um, at the end of the day if we're not able to access these books and read this type of literature we're never going to learn about what really happens and that allows to put out a false narrative on history and on different perspectives I also think that people will not get a full scope of what the world is without books Um, there's certain experiences that you won't experience unless you read the book and you fully understand you know you get to really kind of dive into somebody's thoughts and somebody's feelings and actions um, and why they felt that way and without these things, um, you know, just like other places that had started to ban books, things escalate quickly. Um, And while I think, you know, will we go full-blown to something crazy immediately? I don't think so. But I think that um, book bans can be a bad starting point um, and something, the start of something much worse. But of course, with everything, not all students feel the same way. I also covered the incubate debate, debate, say that three times fast, at Orlando Public Library last week. And here is Shane Moore. He's a junior at Hillsborough County's Newsom High School, and he wants to see some restrictions. Right, you're seeing these pictures of phalluses, of uh, of sexual actions and innuendos that are being shown to children, and I'm watching appalled. And when asked directly on that question, he completely goes around it. I get if this was a question on ideologies, as I mentioned, when you have people like Abram X. Kendi who are, you know, giving their own African American takes on a book, and that's being promulgated. But you have smaller writers that are conservative, but that are also black, who are giving opinions that are differing, but almost no schools are accepting them, that's a slippery slope right there that we can extend on and that we can talk more on. But I'm not hearing a lot of that. I'm hearing more discussion on the fallacies, and that's the real argument that the parents are concerned about. They're not concerned about the Abram X. Kendis. They're concerned about the fallacies and the male genitalia, the female genitalia that is being shown to these children. And that's really why I was disappointed. I wanted to hear more. And I think everyone wants to hear more. I think the parents want to hear more. I think the school board officers want to hear more as well, but I think most importantly, the kids want to hear more. We want to understand why are we being exposed to this content so young. So speaking as a representative of one of those kids, I'm concerned and I want to hear more. And and very well spoken there. Obviously, he was talking about the debate there and Bill de Blasio not kind of coming you know, being forthwith about what sort of restrictions, if any, he would want to see in schools when it comes to books. So that was a great sampling of just what kind of stuff we're hearing from students. Yes. And you mentioned uh, in the beginning we started talking just about school boards being almost overrun with all these books and conversations. Yes. So what role 
do our local district school boards have in deciding which books are yes and which are no? So they've been working with committees to really decide which are removed, which are restricted, and which are kept in schools. And I spoke with Angie Gallo. She's an Orange County school board member at the Incubate debate. And she had this to say about their policy, Sharon, which they're still reworking and revising even now a year later. Um, no, not really this year. We've ha- we have a, um, a lot of things that are coming before the board, but we do have our groups that do address the board, and we've had some issues um, with a lot of books being removed from personal libraries and whatnot, and so we're trying to weed through that policy and that and that process. I know that the, our policy is going to come back before the board so that we can have another go at it to make sure that we get it right. I mean, the language, the way it's written um, in law is very kind of vague in nature, and so it has some of our media specialists a little nervous, and some books that I think have been removed that really shouldn't have been removed. So I'm just here as a spectator just to listen to the comments and, and, and the, the concerns of the citizens. And I also spoke with Matt Susan, who's a Brevard County School Board member, and he was just expressing his frustration with the process, and he likened it to being on a seesaw. You can never please anybody, he said, with these book challenges. I'll speak to it real quick. Um, You know, it's a funny process that we're under in the fact that one week we have a group of people that come in and yell at us that we didn't ban a book. And then the very next week, we have a bunch of people that come in and say, you ban the book. And it's just this seesaw. And I think it's been said multiple times inside by the public and other groups that we do so many other things. We've done so many great things inside this district recently. But this just seems to be the narrative everybody's hung up on. So I did want to just kind of say the system that we're in is just this, it's, it's insanity. But when you look at it, um, I did want to say one thing before I talked about the Court of um, Thorns and Roses. The author is not bad. This just is inappropriate for the time period that we're here. This author has a book that might be appropriate for a later age, might be appropriate for other readers, just not appropriate for our schools. And so when you look at this as a former teacher, there is literally no educational value in this book at all. There's just not. On top of that, it's a romantic novel, and it has explicit things inside of it, which you referenced, Ms. Campbell. So I'll be supporting the uh, recommendation of the committee under those premises, and um, I look forward to every week from this point on going back and forth on the seesaw. All right, that's it. Danielle, I'm sitting here wondering, where are the teachers? Where, did, where are they doing with all of this? Yeah, and there were teachers there that night when they did decide to remove Court of Thrones, um, Thorns and Roses. Um, many of them, I think, are afraid, and mm-hmm. they're not quite sure how to do their teaching thing yeah. <laughs> under these policies and laws. I was speaking with Maggie Chin, who's actually a freshman at West Shore High in Brevard, and she described that her teacher is so concerned about what's allowed and not that she has just a bunch of books in a box uh, for safekeeping. Um, one of our ELA teachers, not my personally, my personal ELA teacher, um, but she has a box of books that were no longer allowed to be um, be allowed to be used because it was banned so she kept it all in the box and and she marked it like banned books and hoping one day that it could get you know unbanned and be taught again like I've been a reader ever since I was small like even before I could read myself my mom has been reading for me so I'm really passionate about you know this topic and this is really a big thing for me you know I think there was a book um, next year that I was going to learn but now I'm not so um, and then I've talked to my ELA teachers because she also teaches 12th grade and I like I was I really 
keep in touch, especially with my English teachers. And like they've been always like experience, like expressing, you know, um, sad sadness, you know, all that since the books are banned and they have to change their stuff. So we've talked a bit about how we got to this point. And now just last week, the governor was in mm-hmm. Orlando and he's calling for these reforms. Why? Why now? What do you think is happening? So he thinks that I think that the book bans have gone too far. Um, they have resulted in some classics like To Kill a Mockingbird and The Diary of Anne Frank that we've talked about before being banned and restricted. And he just was saying, you know, there's no reason why you should ever challenge a dictionary. There's no reason right. why you should ever be challenging these classics or to challenge a book simply because it talks about the black experience. He said these are books that are necessary uh, for learning. And some of them were even on the Commissioner of Education's Book of the Month Club. And so basically he wants to dial these back a little bit. And this is kind of what he said that day at the uh, Cancer Center. And if people are abusing this process to try to muddy those waters, then then we need to have some reforms. Uh, we should absolutely, I mean, if somebody is illegitimately, as an educator, they're illegitimately withholding classic works because they claim that somehow it's a violation, uh, that, that's false. Uh, that is not true. Uh, but you are doing a disservice to those kids, and you should absolutely be held accountable for playing these games. Uh, likewise, members of the community, although we like people wanting to be involved in what's going on, you know, to just show up and object to every single book under the sun, that is not uh, an appropriate uh, a situation here. And, and we've seen that occasionally. Uh, you should not be reviewing dictionaries and encyclopedias and just, just basic things that have been a part of education for a long time. So I think that this is going to get it to where uh, it needs to be. And, you know, he suggested limiting the number of challenges a person can make if they don't have a child in a school district and even fining people for attempting to challenge things that he said, again, are just crucial to learning here in the state of Florida. So very exciting story to cover, especially as of the last week. And I know you will continue to cover it. And I thank will. you. I know you're busy. Thank you for taking your time to join us today. Thank you for having me on your show. It was my honor. And there's more ahead here on Engage. Engage is available on demand at WMFE.org, the mobile app, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE, I'm Sharon Stone. Ahead on this program, the Department of Education has eliminated a required sociology class because it's been determined to be too woke. Our faculty were, I, I think, mostly just shocked that this had happened. Um, because we are a social science, right? Where mm-hmm. it, it, and, and it, the framing of it is such, like, it just mis- mischaracterizes what indeed we do in the classroom. We will speak with a UCF professor about the state changing college curriculum. Right now, Florida Senator Geraldine Thompson currently represents parts of western Orange County, but the Democrat has been elected to state office for decades. Senator Thompson also chairs the Florida Museum of Black History Task Force. So they're developing recommendations for the state legislature on planning, constructing, and operating a new museum. Some of the areas being considered for it include Daytona Beach, Seminole, and Orange Counties. We asked the senator what needs to happen for the museum to be built in Central Florida. One of the possibilities uh, is Eatonville. What kind of makes that complicated is that 
there are a hundred acres of land in Eaton Vale, the Hungerford land, and it's owned presently by the Orange County Public School System. The school system is being sued by Preserve the Eatonville community. The Southern Poverty Law Center is handling the lawsuit. Now, we have to have made a recommendation. We, meaning task force, will make a recommendation by June 30th. And whether that lawsuit is resolved by then, I don't know. But we do know that wherever the museum is located, we will need a lot of acreage because we're talking about, let's say, school children coming from throughout the state of Florida and tour buses, charter buses, parking. And we want the museum to be self-sufficient so that the state is not funding it in perpetuity, which means that it, the, the size of it has to accommodate things like performances, weddings, banquets, those kinds of things. So there is a possibility, yes, but we're hoping that we can get some resolution. I've spoken with people with the school board, and one thing that I'm suggesting, if they maintain ownership of the land, they can commit it for the purposes of the construction of the museum while they work out the ownership issue. So Eatonville is in contention. They have made a presentation to the task force. We also have had presentations from St. John's County. So St. Augustine is pressing hard to have it located there. We've had presentations from St. Petersburg, from Opelika in South Florida. So, you know, yes, we've had 12 presentations. The final presentation will be made February 19th. Uh, we're going to meet and uh, we are going to make a recommendation with, with regard to location because without that recommendation, we don't get to the other tasks that we have to uh, handle, which includes the content, what goes into the museum, because what you put in a museum is never neutral. It elevates the, the content or the subject matter to a different level. We have to have the land, the design, uh, the content, a plan to make it self-sufficient, all of those things by June. I want to transition from this effort to honor Black history in our state to some legislation that is happening now. So in response to state law, it prohibits history from being taught in public schools in a way that makes students feel discomfort or psychologically distressed. You're encouraging parents to file litigation saying that they have felt emotional distress based on the law. Has anybody filed that type of suit yet? No, we've not had that. But we did see in North Carolina a lawsuit that was filed by Asian students who indicated that they felt that they were being marginalized. But the law applies to everybody. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that Black parents, African-Americans, knew that they are covered under the lawsuit as well as anyone else. It says students. It doesn't say uh, white students, even though I think that that's the target population. So yes, I am making people aware that if their students uh, feel uncomfortable because their history is not in the textbooks, 
It's not in the curriculum. It's not in the lesson plans. It's not being presented in the classroom. If that makes them feel uncomfortable, you are covered under this law and you can bring a loss. Are you hearing from black families in your district that they are not comfortable? Yes, absolutely. Uh, when I uh, learned history in classrooms years ago, there was no information about the black experience. So yes, I am hearing that. And yesterday I met with individuals from the Department of Education and delivered over 2,000 petitions from all over the state of Florida, from people who are saying that the current standards for teaching African-American history need to be revised and it needs to be accurate. It should not be slanted. For example, one of the standards says that you must teach when you focus on the Okoye massacre and the Rosewood massacre, that you must focus on violence by and against African-Americans. Now, where's the violence by African-Americans in those two events? These were people, if there was any violence, these were people who were trying to survive, trying to defend themselves. So they object to this slant. And so I delivered these petitions to officials from the Department of Education. They are going to go back and look at the standards as they are now, and they're going to work with subject matter experts. They had a work group who were not all qualified in terms of social studies or African-American history. So they're going to go back and involve some principals, some teachers, some people who have the expertise in African-American history and see if they can't revise those standards. Just to be clear, the signatures, are those parents, are those students, are those educators, or a mix? They're primarily parents. parents. You mentioned the Okoe massacre. Could you please help people understand the effort to expand the scholarship program? Yes. The scholarships currently are for public institutions. And so the legislation that I filed would expand it to private institutions. And primarily, we're trying to make historically Black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, eligible to receive the scholarship. And that is important because right now, there is legislation that prohibits state funds from being spent for efforts focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so you have students who don't feel comfortable in uh, some of our institutions who would choose, would they would like to attend a historically Black college and university where they would feel valued and comfortable. And this scholarship should allow them to do that. So that's the purpose of expanding it to include private institutions. When it comes to the state's public historically Black college and university, We've seen in other public schools and just some efforts to change and impact the curriculum. Do you have any concerns about the State Board of Education impacting curriculum within that school specifically? Well, the only public institution uh, in terms of uh, HBCUs in Florida, the only one is Florida A&M University. Yes. And uh, they have already a museum on campus, the Eaton Meek 
institution where they make that uh, that information available and it's taught in the in the classroom so as i mentioned before uh, people can see their experience they can learn about the history uh, of african americans without any kind of prohibition at florida a and m so i think that a lot of the choices that students are now making in terms of HBCUs in the state. And then many are, are choosing to go outside of the state because of the atmosphere, the environment that exists presently. Uh, they want to be in a place where they can enjoy the college experience without all of these mandates, uh, top-down kind of direction from the state of Florida. Senator Thompson, I'd like to ask you about a couple other issues happening as well. Could you please speak to your take on some of the revisions to the child labor laws in Florida, letting teens work more than 40 hours in a school week and letting 16 and 17 year olds work construction and just taking away mandatory breaks? That is a direct example of what happens when you signal to people that you are not welcome. And so the anti-immigration law that was passed uh, last session, where people, even if they become ill, for example, if they go to a hospital, the hospital has to ask them about their immigration status. And, you know, so people are choosing not to come to Florida. Uh, you have truckers, people who are part of the supply chain who are saying they're not going to deliver goods to Florida. What happens is that you have a labor shortage, and what this legislation is uh, supposed to do, since we don't have immigrant labor here, let's put the kids to work. And I think that that is awful. It puts those children at a disadvantage if they're going to work 40 hours and then have to be in school the next day. How much in terms of their attention span are they going to be able to give to the subject matter that is being presented to them? And, and so I think that it's, it's not well thought out and it puts children in danger. Let's say, for example, that a young person is working at a fast food restaurant and is there until midnight, which can be dangerous. And most robberies happen around that time. And what happens if a child is working and is supposed to be relieved by someone else and that someone else doesn't show up? What happens to that child? Do, do you continue to work? Do you stay? So it, it's, it's very troublesome and it should not be passed. I'm just kind of noticing a theme in talking to you that parents really need to be just aware of what is happening with Florida laws and the impact to children. Yes, they absolutely do. And we've heard a lot about parental rights and a lot of the legislation that was passed, don't say gay and other things, was supposed to be about parental rights. Well, what about uh, parental rights when parents choose not to have their children in these situations? but they have to be aware of the harm, the possible harm, and choose not to have their children involved in, in the ways that are uh, being contemplated. Something we saw pass in the Florida House 
the ban on social media for kids under 16, that is regardless of whether a parent says yes or no. Do you have any thoughts on that ban or if it has a future in the Senate? Well, again, it goes back to parental rights. And you just pointed out, regardless of what the parents say, uh, the state is going to dictate whether or not children have access to social media. And I believe in accountability, responsibility, and not having children on social media for prolonged periods of time. And it should be a parental decision, not a dictate from the state of Florida. Senator, you've served this state for many years, whether it's in the Senate or House. Given the political climate and civil divisions, do you feel like your job has gotten harder? Oh, absolutely. I've never seen anything like this. I was initially elected to the legislature in 2006. So, you know, I've been there. I've been here for a while. And I've never seen this And I've had to make a choice myself, a decision to run from the fight or run to the fight. And my perspective is you can't win unless you stay in the fight. And so that's what I choose to do. Florida Senator Geraldine Thompson currently represents the 15th District. Now, if you miss any part of the show today, you can always subscribe to the Engage podcast and listen when it's convenient for you. And the program will be available on demand at WMFE.org. In early December, Manny Diaz Jr., the commissioner of the Florida Department of Education, wrote a post on X, formerly known as Twitter. It said, quote, sociology has been hijacked by left-wing activists and no longer serves its intended purpose as a general knowledge course for students. Well, yesterday, Florida's state university system determined students in the state's public colleges and universities may no longer use sociology courses to fulfill course requirements. The sociology courses will be replaced with what the Higher Ed Board of Governors refers to as a factual history course. This specific course that triggered this decision is called Principles in Sociology. Its curriculum includes discussions on race and gender, topics that are prohibited from public instruction under the 2022 state law restricting the teaching of race, sexual identity, and other topics the DeSantis administration has labeled as what they call woke. Now, Michael Armato is a director of undergraduate sociology studies at the University of Central Florida. Joining us now in studio, thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Michael, what's your feeling following this announcement? Um, primarily like disappointment, frustration for our students um, and for my colleagues, right? All of us who have to, you know, who get to teach sociology. Um, the quote you gave from X pretty much mischaracterizes what sociology is. I think it's really important to understand that sociology is a social science, which means we, you know, use scientific methods to understand the social world and, you know, try to generate knowledge to, to sort of better have a sense of how the social world operates. And of course, that does mean talking about, you know, race sometimes. It means talking about gender sometimes, talking about institutions. And so um, it's just sort of a disservice uh, to the field, but I think more importantly to our students. And, you know, I presume we'll get into some of the reasons why that matters for our students, because yeah. there's a number of other fields that actually depend on sociology and how they do what they do. 
before we get into that, like, yep. let's um, just take a step back. Can you talk about just what kind of content is in the course Principles of Sociology? Uh, right, yeah. So I'm at UCF. We call it Introduction to Sociology, but some places it's Principles. Um, when you take sociology, we try to explain to you, like, first off, what sociology is, because most people haven't heard of it. And sociology is simply the study of human social life. So it's really about group life. Um, and so we try to, though we may talk about individuals, we try to convey to folks and try to teach our students that there's more to, to, to understanding the social world. The social world is organized in terms of, of patterns, you know, it's organized and institutions figure prominently in that. So students who would take uh, an introduction to sociology course, you know, there's like the introductory section of the course, the first week or two, where we talk about understanding things, you know, with a sociological perspective. Um, and then we move into usually a discussion of culture, understanding what institutions are. Um, then we get into various topics, topics like deviance. Um, we then often move into, along with deviance, like different groups, right? So we'll talk about, like, introduce the notion of what gender is as a social system, right? What race is. We talk about social class. Um, depending upon the course, some people might talk more or less about sexuality, right, as a system, how it's systematically organized. And then usually so intro to sociology close courses will wrap up by attending to those topics within particular institutional sites. So we'll look at education. We'll look at the family. We'll look at um, healthcare institutions, the labor market and the economy and the way that patterns exist across all of those institutions. And then we wrap the course up, right? It's just a survey, so it's almost like a skipping stone, right? We touch on a topic and move on, touch on a topic a week on each topic, basically. And then if students are interested, of course, they could take a deeper dive and take some you know, upper-level elective courses in sociology that are, frankly, organized all around the topics that they were introduced to in intro to sociology. So what are you being told is objectionable about that? Um, I think... If you look at some of the language, um, not just tweets, but language in some of the legislation, in some of the draft legislation, um, in a sociology course, we will talk about you know institutional configurations that include uh, racial inequalities, right? So we talk about institutionalized racism. We will talk about um, we talk about gender as it exists in the actual empirically in the social world, and that doesn't always conform to people's commitments, you know, political commitments. Um, but that is our responsibility, right, to kind of explain the world as it exists. And so I think we're running up against some of that, right? Um, so I think the racism stuff has, has, is, is sort of touched a nerve among some, you know, folks. Um, but I also think gender, sexuality, right? We teach courses in sexuality. Um, but again, in an introduction to sociology course, it's, we don't go into nearly as much depth right? It's sort of really quite cursory. Um, and frankly, our, our goal is to get students excited to think about the world in a different light, because most people aren't thinking in terms of, you know, institutions and social organization. And, in, in in, you know, we tend to prioritize, like, individual frameworks, individual views. You know, we, we, we teach people, you can do anything you want, you just got to set your mind to it. And in sociology, we're not opposed to thinking along those lines, but uh, the nature of reality is such that, um, you know, people's lot in life is often um, highly influenced by their race, their class, their gender, the neighborhood they grew up in. There's an array of kind of social factors that produce various, you know, different differential uh, life chances depending upon those factors. So, You mentioned disappointment as your reaction. Yeah. What are you hearing from other UCF staff or maybe even other Florida schools, mm -hmm. other sociology staff? Um, 
I think mostly this kind of came out of nowhere in a way, right? It wasn't on the agenda for the Florida, you know, the Board of Governors meeting in November when they initially did this. It was sort of tacked on as an amendment to this approved list of general education courses. Um, what I mean by that is the agenda kind of showed that there were going to be three courses added, and then there was an amendment in the meeting, um, uh, as you pointed out, to pull sociology, the intro to sociology course off. So I think most of all, like November, and it was late November as well, right? So, you know, we live in academic uh, timelines, and so it was sort of like the winding down of a semester, um, and I think there was just sort of shock, like, whoa, that was a pretty egregious uh, action to be taken. You know, intro to sociology, uh, for those who don't understand how academia works, when a program um, serves the general education, right, when a, when a program or department serves the general education uh, curriculum, those courses end up being kind of like a lifeline, like the bread and butter of, of the economics of how a department works. Like our budgets depend upon the number of students who take courses. So at the University of Central Florida, I think we'd have something like maybe 2,000 students a year taking Introduction to Sociology. So, um, and they're taking it because it's part of the general education curriculum. So our faculty were, I, I think, mostly just shocked that this had happened. Um, because we are a social science, right? Where mm -hmm. it, it, and, and it, the framing of it is such, like it just mis mischaracterizes what indeed we do in the classroom. You mentioned sociology as a foundation of other courses. Could you uh, elaborate a bit? Yeah, other, there's a number of fields who sort of lean into sociology. Uh, so for example, uh, there's a fair number of like pre-med students uh, who take our Intro to Sociology course, and they're recommended to do so because the MCAT, right, the test they take to get into medical school, has a section on sociology. Um, and so uh, those folks are going to be affected, right? That means that if they want their students to take sociology, they're going to have to do so outside of that core curriculum, which is an additional course they have to take, which is, you know, with a heavy course load already for that that career trajectory, for that major, for the majors that feed into med school, that's quite a bit to ask for students. Um, other field, you know, nursing would be something quite similar. Like increasingly, medicine is understanding that the, the, the like social relations affect people's access to health, experiences of healthcare, and then health health outcomes. So um, it's a pretty profound effect in that regard, right? Yeah. Um, other folks in criminal justice, right? We have a criminal justice program at UCF. A fair number of those students take one of our minors as well, and and the entree to the minor is the intro to sociology course. Can you still offer it? Now? We can still offer introduction to sociology. Yes, it just it won't count towards. Correct. It won't count towards general education um, requirements. Um, so, hmm. are you having any concerns about anything else that could be cut from the curriculum? I do. I have a you know there already have been discussions. Um, even some of the draft policies that have come out of Tallahassee, um, you know, out of committees and stuff. Have have looked at cutting like women's and gender studies. That looked at those kind of things, and so I, I I fear that you know our topical courses that deal with gender, that deal with race, that deal with sexuality, um, I I could see those on the chopping on the chopping block. And I have a concern that this might be. Um, that politicians are savvy, right? And they're trying to see, well, what is the response when we cut intro to sociology and 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 without a, I think a rigorous pushback against that, uh, I could easily see not just sociology courses, but courses across different fields being cut because they, you know, they're they're talking about taboo subjects as defined by certain political actors. Do you anticipate either yourself or others pushing back? I. Hope so. Yeah, I think we do have to push back, right? I I, I don't think um, 
we can just sit idly by. I mean, the the the, the statement from history and and it, right is not that your silence will protect you. I think, <laughs> in fact, if if you know if we're not going to stand up for ourselves, I think no one else is. And so I think um, we, in conjunction with students, I think who are who are, who are quite disadvantaged by this, um, do need to push back. And I would hope that our administrators would would do that. But so far, they haven't been terribly uh, vociferous in their <laughs> challenging of these actions at the state. Michael, do you know anything about the replacement courses, the what they call factual history course? No, I don't know anything about that yet. And I'm not sure anybody does, to be honest with you, right? When these things come down from the Board of Governors, they're usually quite vague and unclear, and we'll see how they get manifested. I'm a little... Um, uh, it's a little disturbing, like factual history. It, it, it you know, I, I have a concern because it sort of backhandedly suggests that we in sociology are not dealing with facts, right? When in fact we are, right? So, um, so I don't know anything about that and what it'll be. I, I, I envision that the state is trying to uh, put its foot on the scale and tilt uh, things toward a specific type of history being taught. Um, which, and it's a type of history that I don't, I don't think is, you know, particularly factual. I, I don't think we can tell history from just one perspective and just do, you know, if you're feeling too happy about when you're reading history, I think you're not reading the right history, right? So, um, and, and given other things that have happened across the state, I, I envision that that's how they envision that history course, but I haven't seen anything in particular to. We've talked a bit about why sociology courses are important. What do you think students will lose with this being eliminated? I think um, this is, I think, deleterious to students because really understanding the world, right? I, I actually am kind of a romantic, I believe, in the general education process through which students take courses from different fields to learn different perspectives, right? Even higher education is increasingly moving toward interdisciplinarity, right? Collaborations across fields because you learn that the way another field views something can be quite helpful and you... When I think about critical thinking, I think about being able to shift perspectives and understand issues from multiple viewpoints, right? And I think taking sociology out of that system um, uh, hurts students' ability to think in one more critical way, right? And 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 that that really matters. That matters in the labor market for our students. And I think Florida students are going to be disadvantaged vis-a-vis -vis their peers um, who got to take sociology in, in other you know in other states. Michael Armato is a lecturer and director of undergraduate sociology studies at UCF. I really appreciate you uh, coming in here and giving us your perspective. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, cowboys and cowgirls take center stage. We are heading to Osceola County for the Silver Spurs Rodeo event just for children with special needs. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. The Silver Spurs Rodeo is billed as the largest rodeo east of the Mississippi. The event has taken place in various forms since 1944. It's a sanctioned rodeo event involving more than 100 cowboys and 60-plus bulls and even more horses. There's a fair with rides and funnel cakes out front. The President's Day tradition of rodeo in Osceola County is a much-anticipated community event. 
Hours before the official rodeo begins, another gathering takes place at the Silver Spurs Arena in Kissimmee. More than 100 special needs youths and families from Central Florida and beyond pour into the rodeo arena to enjoy a morning of adaptive activities. The Silver Spurs Special Rodeo has provided an inclusive experience for kids with developmental delays and disabilities since the early 2000s. And this rodeo begins like most rodeos. All the kids attending have a chance to partake in an adaptive rodeo experience. There's bull riding, not on a real bull, but a safer, mechanical bull. There's a calf roping station, again, not with real calves. Try this. Go like that. And meet and greets with real bull riders, rodeo queens, and even rodeo bullfighters and clowns. We protect the bull rider when he comes off the bull and make sure he gets back to the fence or the chute safely. Things got to be really bad if they need my help, though. Yeah. It's pretty cool to come out here, though, with the kids. I mean, you got to think a lot of these kids don't get outdoors, much less to be able to come down actually in the arena dirt and be on the ground where the cowboys are and, and then have a hands-on uh, experience of what it might be like to actually ride a horse, you know, feel the balance of what it is and uh, get away from, I say, their everyday life and come experience the fun. Many of the kids are wearing Western shirts, cowboy hats, and dusty boots. These aren't casual weekend warriors. They are die-hard rodeo fans. Angela Fenewald and her twin sons, Ethan and Colin, drove down to Kissimmee from Oviedo. Her boys loved the rodeo. Especially Ethan, when he was younger, loved anything cowboy. So he always had his cowboy boots, his cowboy hat, all the little figurines, the nice um, horse. He's loved animals since he was really little. And I don't know, he just loved, you know, being a cowboy or acting like a cowboy. <laughs> the first time we were here eight years ago, everything was like 30 minutes line. It was packed. I'd never seen that many people in, in a place like this before. It was awesome though. He was hooked from the very beginning. My name's Kobe. It's been a fun life. Being here, working on working on being a cowboy, it's really been good. Kobe has been attending since grade school. His mother, Brenda Raffanello, described Kobe's first time at the rodeo. He didn't walk till he was five. He couldn't talk. He couldn't walk. And he got so excited just coming around seeing all the bulls. And he loved the horses. In the mid-80s, the Silver Spurs Special Rodeo was developed by another mother. Fran McLaughlin was a member of the Silver Spurs Riding Club and the mother of a child with special needs. Silver Spurs big boss Sarah Berlinski shares the story. She started it and put it together to try to be inclusive. She said like her other boys did stuff, so she wanted something for him to do. And that voice you heard over the PA? That's Jamie Brothers. He's a professional rodeo announcer. 
but presenting trophies to all the participants of the Silver Spurs Special Rodeo is a real treat for him. This is my 10th year. I kind of accident fell into this. I was here doing the cowboy church before, uh, be before the service for the contestants, and the uh, fellow that was announcing wasn't up to doing it. It didn't feel good. So I do small rodeos around here and there, and they asked me to do it. And what a blessing it was to get to be involved with this uh, event here. 80-something kids a day. Every one of them went away. The winner! So I'll say that in my sleep for about three days now, but God bless them all. We're glad that it was here, and we're glad that we could do something with them. After about two hours of roping and riding on the dirt floor of the rodeo arena, everybody to camps for a breather. But most will be back in a few hours for the big show. Everybody gets tickets to that evening's performance by the professional cowboys riding the big bulls. And for the next 12 months, Kobe, Ethan, and all the special needs kids who showed up will have their memories. Oh my gosh, you are so pretty. Thank you. I love your pants and your bell bottoms are amazing. Did you ride the horse? Yeah. And you rode a horse? No, I don't. Guess you what? You are. That's all for today's edition of Engage. Join us Thursday at 3 o'clock, and we want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear more about or what you're glad you heard. Just send us an email to engage at wmfe.org. You can learn more about today's program by visiting our website, wmfe.org. You'll be able to find today's show there so you can listen when it's convenient for you. I'm Sharon Stone. Thanks for the company.